Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Nora Gold. Nora is a prize-winning writer and the author of three books, Marrow and Other Stories, the winner of a Canadian Jewish Book Award, Fields of Exile, winner of the 2015 Canadian Jewish Literary Award, and The Dead Man, published in 2016, which was awarded a Canada Council Translation Grant and was published in Hebrew. She is also the founder and editor-in-chief of JewishFiction.net, a prestigious online literary journal that publishes Jewish-themed fiction from around the world, either written in English or translated into English from 18 languages. To date, JewishFiction.net has published 500 works of fiction that were never before published in English, including fiction by eminent authors like Elie Wiesel. JewishFiction.net has readers in 140 countries. Nora holds a PhD from the University of Toronto, and from 1990 to 2000, she was a tenured professor of social work with several scholarly publications to her credit. She left full-time academia in 2000, and for the next 18 years, was affiliated with the University of Toronto's Center for Women's Studies in Education. Nora also coordinated the Wonderful Women Writers Series housed at the Toronto Public Library. In addition, Nora is a co-founder of three Zionist organizations in Canada and has been involved over the past 35 years in community work and social activism that reflects her commitment to social justice and her love of Israel. So welcome, Nora. I'm so thrilled to have you here today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, Meryl. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Well, it's interesting that you didn't actually start your career as a full-time writer, but rather as a professor of social work. Why and when did you decide to switch gears and devote yourself to writing full-time? Well, I didn't really switch gears. I've, I've always written. And in fact, I started writing when I was a child. I published my first poetry and stories in college. And I've never not written. It was always the main thing I did in my mind. But of course, <laughs> one has to earn a living. And I, I loved people. And I was very interested in social change. And I was drawn to social work. And I, I loved doing that too. But um, it was a switch gear in the sense that at a certain point, you know, and you as a writer will appreciate this, all writers know that that time is the biggest challenge. You know, when when right. do you have time to write? How do you make time for writing? Mm -hmm. And I found that when I was a professor, I mean, there are professors who just show up for their classes and <laughs> don't do much else. I was serious about my work. Of course, I sat on lots of committees and I helped students and all this. It was very, very much a full-time job. Mm -hmm. 
And I realized at a certain point that, you know, other people can teach my classes and nobody else can write my books. By that time, I had already published my first book, Marrow and Other Stories, which, as you mentioned, uh, had won a, a prominent award and uh, was shortlisted for a major Canadian prize uh, outside the Jewish community. So that was encouragement. But basically, um, it didn't feel so much switching gears as continuing the main gear in a certain way at that point. Okay, um, I'm I'm really interested in the in the wonderful literary journal that you founded, JewishFiction.net. Can you tell us how it came to be and why you decided to launch this? <laughs> yes, I certainly will. Um, first of all, for those who don't know, and and thank you, Meryl, for describing the journal somewhat. Um, this is an online literary journal. It's the only journal in the world, actually, either print or online, that's devoted exclusively to publishing Jewish fiction. Mm -hmm. So we publish first-rate Jewish fiction from around the world. And as, as your listeners have heard, we've published over 500 works, either written in English or translated into English from 18 languages. Um, it's free of charge. It's a very easy sign-up. It's just your name and an email. And um, it's the address is www.jewishfiction.net. As for what motivated me to start it, um, there were a few things. First of all, I had a friend who was a very good writer, a writer of Jewish fiction, who couldn't find a publisher for her work. And, mm -hmm. you know, now, I mean, it, it sounds ludicrous to talk about the dangers of the digital revolution and its impact on publishing. But at the time when all this was happening, uh, 15, 20 years ago, whatever, um, publishers were really terrified to take an unknown writer. They were worried that they were gonna go out of business, they weren't taking chances, and it just became much harder to find a publisher. So I was worried about my friend, but I also, I wasn't having a problem myself, but I understood from asking around that her problem was quite a common one at that period. Um, Jewish writers were being told, you know, just put it in a drawer and come back to us in 10 years when this is, you know, simmered down. Yeah, my friend said, well, I'm just, I'm gonna give up writing. I'm not, I can't sit around for 10 years. Right. So I was worried about all this really great literature getting lost. And there, I noticed, that there was just no journal, either print or online, that was focusing specifically on Jewish fiction. Um, I was very interested in Jewish fiction from around the world. You know, all, when people talk about Jewish fiction, almost always what they have in mind, if their native language is English, they're talking about American Jewish fiction, which mm -hmm. is a marvelous body of work. Um, as a Canadian, I was also aware of Canadian, English, Australian, South African, other English language, Jewish fiction that was not well known at all by comparison. But also I was aware that there was almost no Jewish fiction available in translation, um, available to English language readers. Right. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to read that. So, you know, there's a cliche about you know, people write the book that they want to have read, you know, I created the journal so that I could read the work I wanted to read. Um, so this journal is a truly international journal. But I also actually had a couple of other motivations. Uh, mm -hmm. 
one of them, and I'm sure you've noticed, we've all noticed, Meryl, that like other communities around the world, the Jewish community worldwide was becoming very polarized, increasingly polarized between left-right, religious, right. secular, mm -hmm. and so forth. And I really wanted there to be a place where all kinds of Jews and their stories could meet each other and find a common space, a civil sort of safe space for exchange. And so I've actually made an effort to publish people of different political, religious views, diaspora Israel, people of different sexual orientations, writing about that, diverse cultural backgrounds within Judaism. And outside of beyond the Jewish community, I really wanted non-Jews to be reading Jewish fiction. I wanted to create a bridge between Jewish and non-Jewish readers. You know, just the way I love to read fiction from all different cultures. Uh, there's no reason why I thought others wouldn't be interested in reading our literature. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and, you know, the translation community, the international translation community, I was pleased to discover is very aware of jewishfiction.net and, and very appreciative. Uh, this whole non-Jewish scholarly community uh, has access. And now other people have access. I mean, you know, three times a year on your phone or your computer, you get a bunch of fantastic stories, um, all Jewish themed, always translated, some are translated at least from other languages. So it's a lot of fun. And I also have been told that we've had impact, which is a lot of impact. And that's actually, of course, very satisfying. We're all volunteers. It's a labor of love for all of us. So. It's wonderful to know that it's appreciated by our. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So, um, your amazing journal is free of charge. So, yeah. um, how do you have help putting it together? Uh, how long does it take you to put I'll it together? To it, it seems like a full time job. <laughs> Well, yes, I think everything I do becomes a full-time <laughs> job. You know, I started all these Zionist organizations and they were 20, 30, 40 hours a week mm -hmm. to, to launch and keep going. Um, I have an incredible team uh, of volunteers. I, I absolutely could not be putting out this journal without them. Um, they're listed on the website. I'm not going to rattle off all their names, mm -hmm. but they're amazing, amazing, brilliant people. Um First of all, you raised the issue of financial support. To me, it was very, very important that it be free of charge. And it, it still is. And in fact, people keep approaching me and saying, you know, this is a gold mine, no pun intended. You know, this could be monetized. I don't want to monetize. I was shocked, you know, when I first subscribed to it to find out that it that it was free. I, I was really very surprised. I have readers, for example, uh, in distant countries, I won't, I don't want to embarrass anyone who might be listening, but who have nothing but a phone and actual non-Jewish readers who could never afford to pay us. I also had one day when I was just beginning with this journal and just trying to decide how to do it, I was on a bus and I, on the bus happened to be some boys from the same Jewish high school that my son had attended. And they were looking for things to do on their phones. And I thought, wow, like how amazing if they would read stories, you know, instead of just playing their games. I don't know if that's a pipe dream, but I thought I want this to be available to a teenager. I want this to be, I just don't want money to be a barrier. 
So we are sustained entirely by donations from our readers. We have passionate, enthusiastic, and generous supporters from around the world. Uh, thank God, I feel very grateful to them. Um, and we also, I mean, the the team that works on these journals. So, I mean, the way it works is everything is all the submissions that come to us are read by two, often three reviewers anonymously. We mm -hmm. One used to say blind review, of course, one doesn't say that now. They're all anonymous review. Um, it's pretty hard to get into our journal, to be frank, because we have a high standard, which is the only standard if you're talking about literary excellence. And other than being Jewish themed, obviously a wonderful story that has no Jewish content isn't something we're going to accept. But we really have no criteria other than literary excellence, apart from the Jewish themed aspect. And we actually have, unfortunately, I mean, there are some extremely well-known authors who have sent us work, not their best work, that we didn't feel was appropriate for our journal. So, um, but yes, it is very time consuming. And as you know, Meryl, from running Jews Love to Read, your wonderful <laughs> group on Facebook, you know, everything that grows just demands more and more time. And your own writing just with that, you know, is competing with that to some extent. Ab absolutely. I mean, sometimes <laughs> whole days go by and I say I spent the whole time on Facebook and I and I didn't get to write at all. So, yeah, I I, I totally I totally understand that. Um, I'm just, one, sorry, just to say that one thing that sort of keeps me at it, because you, your point is correct, days can go by, and this wasn't meant to replace my own writing, is the fact that we've launched numerous writing careers for Jewish writers who we've published, their first published work was with us. And, and we get these kind of love letters every time we publish an issue. And whenever I think, you know, what is this, you know, is this worth my time? And the, the incredible importance that this journal has to other people reminds me of its value. And of course, that's, that's very reinforcing for the work invested. So uh, which stories uh, do you think have the most resonance with readers? I know it's sort of like asking you who your favorite children are, but um. Uh, are there any stories that really um, stand out to you? Well, out of 500 stories, um, you know, I can't pick one or two. I would say more, I can answer more thematically, Meryl. Okay. You know, in terms of the numbers of stories we receive on different themes, we get an enormous number of Holocaust themes. Mm. Um, and not necessarily from people, older people, but some from 18 year olds, um, from young people. It, it, it's an interesting phenomenon. Actually, I realized very early on in the life of this journal that if I wanted, I could make this into a journal of Holocaust fiction. And indeed, at one point when I considered seeking funding for the journal, a very major Jewish foundation, whose name I won't mention, obviously, um, agreed to fund us if we would make this into a Holocaust literary journal. 
Wow. And I, of course not. That's not what I wanted to do mm -hmm. uh, for many reasons. Um, one of them, and not a, uh, perhaps the most major reason, is that I don't think Judaism and Jewish culture and Jewish literature is exclusively about the Holocaust, thank God. Right. I think that's right. a mm -hmm. <clears throat> rather obscene perception of what Judaism and Jewish culture are about. So um, we continue to publish a certain percentage of Holocaust-related stories, but um, that's certainly not all we do. Right. So, um, you know, you you were, I think, a little bit ahead of the curve with having uh, Fiction.net solely online. Now, since the pandemic, everything is online. Um, did the did the pandemic have any impact on the size or composition of your readership? Uh, we're always growing. I don't know. I think think it may have had a lot of new we have had a lot of new readers we had quite a lot of readers anyway I mean the thing about our journal is that you don't have to be a subscriber to read the current issue anyone can just go on right. so I know that we can have very high numbers of readerships of people who haven't subscribed this the subscription list is not indicative of our readership is what I'm saying um in addition to being jewishfiction.net, we're also jewishfiction.com. Um, I've been encouraged for quite a while now to actually change our name. Um, mm -hmm. In any case, anyone who searches Jewish fiction or jewishfiction.com, it comes to us because we also own that domain. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, Nora, what would you say are the elements of a great short story? Well, this is very subjective, obviously. And obviously, anything, <laughs> anything I would say, actually, I can think of an objection to Meryl because it's it's like, you know, when you read something that's truly original, and I guess at some level, I look for originality. I mean, you know, if we're talking about Holocaust stories, and of course, they're all worthy. And in many cases, they relate to the author's family. And so it has all sorts of personal resonance and meaning. But there's a certain almost template for a Holocaust story. I mean, we, I've now read hundreds and hundreds over these mm -hmm. years, and, and they're just a whole bunch that are incredibly similar. Okay. And that's the same with all stories. I mean, if you if you talk about structure, for example, of a story, I don't think innovative structure is a be all and end all. I'm not, I think sometimes, uh, and I'm not talking just about what I read for jewishfiction.net, but reading in general, sometimes it can be very sticky or it's a trick, you know, it's a kind of game, you know, how clever can you be with the structure? Mm -hmm. Sometimes a, a traditionally structured story can be absolutely brilliant because of the quality of the writing because of the plot because of the depth because of the allusions um, it can just be absolutely magical so I don't see any hard and fast recipe and I don't really have anything to add to you know all the obvious things that you have to have 
some plot, some character, something has to happen. There has to be something engaging about it. Um, but that's it. You know, as I said, anything I say, I can contradict by myself. You can have a brilliant story with almost no plot where a person's, it's a person's inner life sitting in a chair or looking at a sunset. And it can be the most brilliant thing you've ever read. So I really approach these stories with a wide open mind. And in fact, I recently read a story that was just extremely boring. Um, one of the submissions to jewishfiction.net was just extremely, extremely boring. Mm -hmm. um, but I was reading it because I don't read things unless at least one of my reviewers recommends it for publication. Mm -hmm. So this had been recommended by two out of two reviewers. And I was bored to death. And I was thinking, you know, maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe <laughs> their judgment was off. What is this? You know, but I forced myself to read it to the end. And the end was incredibly shocking and interesting and smart. Um, whether that justifies, you know, the whole first part that preceded it being boring. I don't know. I mean, I have to decide whether or not, um, you know, I have to make a decision ultimately about that story. But you know, a fantastic ending has power. I you certainly can't quantify does a does a great ending justify 15 pages that you have to plod through. I don't know. I mean depends. That's a really interesting question. <laughs> yeah, is, you know, this is what I deal with all the time. It's really interesting. And it's also really interesting for me as a writer. You know, when I'll sometimes look at my own work and say, you know, I'm asking the reader to put up with a certain amount. You know, do I really want to ask the reader to put up with that? Would I want to put up with that if a story came across? Oh, my that's a great question, Nora. That's that's yeah. that's great. I you know, I'd like to jump off from there. And um, you've written uh, obviously you write both short stories and novels. Um, what's the difference between writing a short story, except for the fact that it's shorter and a novel? And do you have a preference? Well, this is a very interesting question, Meryl. I mean, the whole question of length. You know, we may talk about this later, the whole issue of how people are reading now or not reading now or mm -hmm. reading differently now, which research shows we are actually reading differently now neurologically. Mm -hmm. Our brains have adopted, have adapted to reading differently because of the digital world. I do think people are more impatient and they want shorter works. And the online world has made stories um, very popular. It's given them another life because, oh, it's bite-sized. You know, you can read it on your phone while you're you know, mm -hmm. waiting for someone to show up or whatever. Um, I actually have always loved the short story. And I actually think of it in many ways as a higher form than anything else, uh, any other prose form. It is extremely, extremely challenging to write a really excellent story. Um, in a novel, you know, it's hard to write a really excellent novel. Right. It's hard to write anything excellent. Um, I never really planned to write a novel, but after the success of my first book, which was a book of stories, mm -hmm. everyone said to me, like, does, I mean, dozens, everyone 
said to me, well, okay, now you've written your stories. Now do the real thing. You write a novel, you know, as though right. the novel was the real thing and stories were just a toy. <laughs> I, I, I did it because sort of that's what you do. You write your novel. And I wrote Fields of Exile, which was about anti-Israelism on campus. And then I wrote another novel. Um, but what I'm writing now, uh, I've just finished a third novella. Um, what I have coming out in 2024 is a book of two novellas, and I just, just finished another novella. And Can you tell our listeners what a novella is for those who may not know? Well, that's actually, <laughs> my, answer, my answer to all of your questions is equivocating. Uh, it's actually hard to define. It's, it's not just a short novel. And they're actually, if you go online and you type in, you know, uh, length of a novella, novella length, you'll get a whole range of answers um, about, about how many words that should or shouldn't include. There's no agreement about it, actually. But um, a novella, for example, uh, in the hands of someone like Henry James or Edith Warden. Uh, Henry James was a master of the novella. I didn't, and, and The Dead by James Joyce right. uh, was unbelievably powerful piece of work. I never knew that they were novellas. I thought of anything shorter than a novel as a story. And it, when I'm working on them, I call them stories, but their length is longer. And obviously you can do more in a certain way with a novella than with a short story. You simply have more room to develop uh, certain things, plot, character, whatever you want, certain themes in a certain way. And yet it can't be too long. It can't just sprawl. It has to be very tightly contained and really every word has to count. So I love the novella form. And I don't know if it will make a comeback um, during, well, I was going to say, we're not, I don't really think we're post-COVID actually, post-pandemic. Everyone seems to say we are, but that's all. That's, that's, that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other conversation. But um, I wonder if the novella will make a comeback. I think it is an incredible form. And um, it'll be interesting to see the response, for example, to my to my two novellas in 2024. Um, the publisher, I have a very fine publisher for it, and they were willing actually to publish one novella alone. But I feel, I felt, and I persuaded them that two together would be a more substantial. Do you do you have a title for that? Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, it's fascinating. Um, I have a very creative publisher. The publisher is Guernica, which is, in my view, the finest um, Canadian independent, independent literary press publisher. Um, and something that the publisher suggested, which I love, is to actually make two book covers and flip them. So a person oh. can buy mm -hmm. like an upside down book, like you can, you, you can title it either way. Uh, one of them is called Yom Kippur in a Gym. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's set during Yom Kippur, during Neila, during the final service. Mm -hmm. And it's about six very lonely, isolated human beings who have come to this community service in a JCC because they don't belong to a shul or anywhere. They're very lonely, lost people. 
and something happens during the service that's very dramatic and throws them together, there's a kind of crisis that changes all of their lives. So that's the first one. And the second one is called In Sickness and in Health, which actually I wrote before the pandemic struck. And it's about a woman with a secret illness that she keeps even from her husband, physical okay. illness, not, mm -hmm. not a mental illness. Mm -hmm. And the impact of that kind of a secret on her marriage, on her family, and on her whole life. Wow. And she's a cartoonist, so she actually oh. draws about this. Well, I certainly look look forward to to reading these. I'd just like to follow up. You mentioned before about um, the question of uh, are people reading less than before, and and if not, does this matter? I, do you have anything more to say on on that topic? Yes, I think it's a very important question. There's a lot of concern about it, um, and I come across it online, among other things. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn where I have almost 50,000 followers and oh. I spend some time reading what other people are talking about. And this is a topic that is discussed. Um, I think that there's good reason to be worried about people reading less than before and differently than before. First of all, there are, I don't have to tell you or your readers, or your listeners, uh, the benefits of reading psychologically, cognitively, and creatively. Um, so there's concern that if people don't read, they, they will lose out on all sorts of benefits uh, that I, I don't have to run through the whole list. But what's happening, according to Marianne Wolf, who wrote this extraordinary book called Reader, Come Home, we are no longer, people of my generation are no longer able to physically read the way they once did. Already, after just 10 or 15 years of digital life, our brains have changed. Really? And, yes, it's, it's an incredible book. It's research-based. She's a neuroscientist of great repute. And she, which astonished me, found that she herself could not read properly. She runs a clinic for people with reading disabilities. Um, and she had to teach herself to read again. She went back to read Magister Ludi, which had been one of her favorite books in high school, and she physically could not read it. She couldn't concentrate. She couldn't get into it. And it took her two weeks till she could read again. And I actually, and all of my friends, including writers, are whispering confessionally to each other that it's harder to read. And if it's happening to us, it's happening to everybody. So I've been getting myself to read more regularly. And I'm returning to the kind of reading that I was able to do of just disappearing into a book. But the reason to be concerned about this is not only because those of us who love books or who write books, we want people to buy our books, we want people to read our books. It's not at that exactly. level of a concern. The the point that she makes with which I am completely in accord is that people who don't read, and she talks about reading deeply, not reading emails, not, you know, not that kind of thing, to deeply exactly. read. Mm -hmm. um, people who don't do that do not learn to think with nuance and deeply, and as a result are much more vulnerable to 
influenced by other ideas, such as to taking other people's opinions, which to her seems to lead to authoritarianism and a challenge to democracy and to tolerance. The reason that I feel not only intuitively, but because I know the research about literary fiction. I was in a group that actually involved two of the leaders in the field of the psychological effects of literary fiction. And the research shows absolutely beyond doubt that people who read literary fiction, good fiction, are transformed in their real lives by it. And there is a, a quantitative increase in their empathy in real life. They actually did experiments where they took two groups and one group was given literary fiction to read for an hour and the other was given just non-literary fiction to read. And there was an, a pre and post experiment of how they responded to somebody who was in trouble. And it was absolutely beyond doubt that literary fiction makes you more empathic and more tolerant as a human being. That's fascinating, Nora. That... And I have to say, I'm worried about our world. And I think that if people were more empathic and more tolerant, this world would have a better future than, than it sometimes look like, looks like it has, and that the real key is reading. Fascinating. So uh, we're going to get to your books in a minute, but I, while we're on the topic of fiction, I'm just curious, do you think there's, uh, well, obviously there is, but is, is there a difference between Jewish fiction and general fiction? And is there something in particular that makes a book a Jewish book? Well, this is a massive question. I mean, as you know, probably Meryl, there are hundreds and hundreds of articles and there are books and essays written on the topic, many of which I've read because I wanted to be very clear about this when running this journal. Obviously, mm -hmm. if I reject something because I don't consider it having Jewish content, I have to know exactly what I mean by that. The short answer or the shortest answer I can give without, I certainly wouldn't want to give you a you know, a whole lecture here, but the, there are many different definitions, uh, many different ways of, of defining Jewish fiction. The one that I consider the most far-reaching and profound and practical is Ruth Weiss's definition in the modern Jewish canon, which is not a recent book, but it is brilliant. Uh, it has, like any other book, it has, um, there are shortcomings, limitations to her approach, some of which she recognizes herself and some of which her, her own students uh, articulated in a fest shrift that was written in her honor called Arguing the Modern Jewish Canon. Um, but basically, it's brilliant. And it talks about... Um, a work of Jewish fiction is fiction where either the author or the character lets you know that they are Jewish. Mm -hmm. And to put it uh, more, to refine it further, it's where the there is an experience of Jewish culture or history, past, present, or future 
whether that is uh, Jewish identification religiously or more broadly culturally, that can't be separated from the work itself. And I'll tell you uh, an example. I once knew uh, a writer who had heard that I had something published in an American Jewish literary journal, print journal. This was about 20 years ago. And she was envious. She said, I have a story. I really want to find someone for it. Can you give me their address? That was when you mailed things in in an envelope. Oh, remember those days? Yeah, yeah. remember? So I, I wrote down the envelope, you know, the address and all that. And she sent it in. And I had seen the original story. And I'd said to her, it's, it's not a Jewish story. So she said, no problem. And she changed the character's name to a Jewish name. It was a story about unrequited love. So the mm. character was walking down a street in Toronto, eating a donut, feeling bad that the boy she loved didn't love her back. Mm -hmm. So she gave the character a Jewish name. She changed the street in Toronto to be the sort of Shmata district, which would be <laughs> identified as a Jewish area in Toronto. Um, she gave the boy a Jewish name and she changed the, the donut to a bagel <gasps> and her story was accepted. Oh my goodness. And that is what I have ever since called culinary Judaism. Okay. It's a Jewish story because there's a bagel. We do uh -huh. not accept culinary Jewish definitions of literature and an example of a story that you can't remove the Jewish content from and still leave it standing. Well, there are a whole bunch of, of examples that, that Ruth Weiss gives, um, including Red Cavalry by Isaac Babel. And we were honored to have published a new translation of some of the stories in that collection. But even, even my own Fields of Exile, which was about anti-Israelism on campus. And you there is no novel left if you take out the Jewish content. Wow. Nothing. Great. That is a great, um, great explanation, great definition. And that that brings us to your three books. Um, can you tell us about them and um, what is Jewish about them? Ah, thank you for that question. Well, as as you've mentioned, uh, I've so far published three books. You've heard about the one that is forthcoming. The first book, Marrow and Other Stories, <clears throat> was a collection of a number of stories, one I would almost say novella length, and it dealt with different issues in each story. But to give you a few examples, uh, the title story, Marrow, is set in Israel, and it deals with actually the impact of the first intifada on a tourist from Canada, a very traumatic event, actually. Another story uh, is a feminist retelling of the Joseph story in the Bible called Yosefa. And this book came out in 1998, but some, many of the stories were from the 80s. So to the best of my knowledge, and I was told at the time that that was the first feminist retelling of the Joseph story mm -hmm. or of most stories. No one, when I, it was published in a Jewish feminist literary journal, everyone said it was the first. The Another story from Marrow and Other Stories, which was another first, but not such a happy first, was the first story written about sexual abuse by a rabbi. 
Um, this was published in the early 1980s, and it was published under a pseudonym in Bridges, which was a Jewish feminist journal. Uh, Yosefa was first published in Lilith, which still exists. Uh, Bridges no longer does. Um, I was amazed when this uh, book won a Canadian Jewish Book Award, and the title story won praise from Alice Munro. So I was very, very surprised about the success of this book. I thought only Jewish feminists will, will take to this book, but it had a much broader appeal. My second book, uh, which was my first novel, Fields of Exile, as I've said, was about anti-Israelism on campus. I came to write it actually after creating a project to deal with the problem in real life of anti-Israelism on the left. And I consider myself progressive. Um, this isn't a political podcast and I'm not gonna go there, but clearly, if you're talking about anti-Israelism on campuses, that's a, basically a political, there's a political perspective to that analysis. And my politics are progressive, but all of a sudden there was a left where I no longer belonged because I loved Israel. So this, I was agonized over this. I created a project, as I said, that the Jewish community in Toronto um, responded to. Um, I also started an organization called JSpace Canada so that people would have an alternative place to the anti-Israel left and the and the pro-Israel right. It was a progressive Israel-loving place. But I still needed to write about this problem. It was just like I had I had a, a hook in my stomach or something. Mm -hmm. I just I just had to write and I just wrote it out. And as you kindly mentioned that one a Canadian Jewish Literary Award it's a different book award than I than the other one the first one I won the third book uh is called The Dead Man it's set in That's Israel quite a title <laughs> I know and I there's a Yiddish play called The Dead Man which I discovered when I was I was invited to watch it a, a uh, an online um version of that play after my own book came out I was so shocked and anyway it's not about a dead body and when I get, did a reading from this book uh, at a library when it was in process um, they, they were very angry it was a kind of mystery series and they said there's no dead body you can't call it the dead man <laughs> but um, anyway it's about a composer of classical Jewish music and She's written, for example, a Kaddish concerto. Her whole soul is about Jewish music and her whole life is about Jewish music. And she's trying to get over a love relationship with a man in Israel who is the preeminent critic of Jewish music, the most internationally renowned expert in Jewish music. And it's set in Israel and it's um, very deeply Jewish work. In Are you a musician? I am not a musician, um, although I play piano, played piano. Um, I'm a music lover. I'm a, I, I'm a passionate music lover and um, know a little bit about it. It was not hard. People ask me, oh, how did you do the research? I didn't do any research for the book. It was, I know something about music and it just mm -hmm. sort of came out. So there's lots of Jewish content in all my books. And um, I would say in all of them, 
the characters really struggle, but they have they have meaningful struggles and they do their best with the challenges of life the way we all do. And uh, and the books are also, even though they all deal with some serious themes, I mean, I'm, I listed themes, so they all sound rather serious and heavy, but actually the books are all full of a lot of humor and joie de vivre and the pleasure of being alive and everyday life. Great. Well, we're They're all on Amazon, by the way, which I should have oh, said. Sorry. Great. And a, a few of the stories from Marrow are also available to read on my website at noragold.com. Okay. Well, we're coming, uh, our time is coming to a close, Nora. This has been a delightful conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to share uh, with our uh, listeners? Um, I think you've asked such excellent questions and so thorough, but well, maybe I'll end with some comments about just why I think Jewish, not Jewish fiction, well, Jewish fiction too, but why I think fiction is, is so special. And um, it's something I've been thinking about in, in recent years, not only because of the research I've been reading about the psychological and social effects of reading good fiction, but I really think that fiction has a certain kind of magic that that other that other genres don't possess and I'll tell you why I think what happens when you read fiction is that your defenses drop and once you decide to keep reading past the first few pages even if the main character is an axe murderer <laughs> you decide to keep reading and what happens is you let this person in in. You let them inside you. And once you've done this, you enter. And for a, t a time, you inhabit this person's inner world. And you see the world through their eyes. And that is really what empathy is. And it's basically confronting, not in, a, in an adversarial way, but it, it's encountering the other. And I think that because fiction, and when I say fiction, I mean literary fiction, brings us closer to otherness and differentness. And I'm hearkening back a bit to a previous comment, and it has the capacity to change us as people, because it makes us more empathic and tolerant, even at the neurological and physical level. I really think that it means that there's a kind of hope for for the Jewish people, first of all, if if our people remain readers, people of the book, as you are as your podcast is called. <laughs> if we really do keep reading good literary fiction, I think we'll be better people and a better people. And I also think more broadly, beyond the Jewish world, I really think that it can help to make this world a better place. Wow. Thank, thank you for those insights, Nora. Just very quickly, uh, would you tell us again where people can, can find you and, and your journal? Certainly. And your books. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My website is noragold.com, www.noragold.com. You can read there about all of my books and where to buy them and read a little bit there about jewishfiction.net. But for the journal itself, 
The address is www.jewishfiction.net. Then again, if you just Google Jewish fiction, we pop up either first or very close to the top. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Nora Gold, the publisher of JewishFiction.net and the author of three books, The Dead Man, Fields of Exile, and Marrow and Other Stories. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain, the author of The Takeaway Men. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, will be published in April. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylain.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and Read a Good Book.